0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading.
1: Scripture reading is from 1 Peter 3, 18-22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of death, dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for
0: our good. Thanks be to God. Uh, Thanks be to God. Amen. Um, As I said, it's a very tough passage, but it is indeed God's Word, and we have to trust that uh, it was left for our good, but we do need uh, God's Spirit's help to help us make sense of some of what's being said here, so let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask now as your church here in Toronto that you not only would present yourself to us in your kindness and in your gifts, but you would send your spirit upon us in our hearts and our minds and even upon my lips, that these words might be words of good news to us, your people here in Toronto, words of hope, that these words might direct us more and more to our union with Christ, and we might find ourselves caught up with courage to be his people. So speak to us, we ask, through this your word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we go. Um, I'd venture to guess that uh, there's probably no more successful logo than the Nike swoosh. And it's hard to quantify a statement like that, and I don't know if anyone cares about my opinion. But nonetheless, it's a fairly successful logo. It was designed in 1971 by a woman named Carol Davison. who was actually a student in university, and Nike paid $35 for a logo that is now evaluated to be worth $26 Now, why is that Nike swoosh? No matter how old or young you are, I think you can picture in my head the the logo. Why is it such a great logo? Well, as you may or may not know, the name Nike is a play off of a word, uh, the name of the Greek goddess of victory. Nike or Nike was something... Something uh, was tied to something of conquest and of victory in Roman culture. And in a strange way, this logo seems to embody what the goddess was uh, known for. This smooth uptick sort of captures victory, almost like a checkmark over our enemies. Gone and done, up and out. And when you see that logo... It carries that sense of victory on the basketball court, on the football field, on the soccer field, wherever you may see it. And a brand like Nike wants you to believe that you too will triumph. You will go to your enemies and you will leave next to their name a check mark that you have came and you conquered, you were victorious, you dominated. The logo is meant to give you a sense of confidence, some uh, instill confidence in your head that you too will conquer. Now listen, we are in no question the hardest passage of Peter, maybe one of the hardest passages of the whole entire Bible. And it's tempting to get overwhelmed by these language of the spirits in prison, and what exactly does Peter mean when he says baptism saves? But I just want your eyes to see, and if you have your Bible open or your bulletin open, even if you have a pen it might be worth circling in your bulletin, a general pattern that's here that's in some senses sort of resembles this Nike swoosh, this sort of conquest path we read that even though Jesus was righteous he died in verse 18 verse 21 we read of his resurrection but he doesn't just stay a resurrected human being walking on this earth never to die again he's elevated into the heavens and he sits above all spiritual beings and he puts them in subjection verse 22 he comes he descends and he ascends higher than before in a sense, you see the same logo, and in a sense, I am convinced as Peter is uh, trying to encourage his, this church is, that he's writing to, in the same way that Nike logo is meant to instill some kind of confidence, Peter wants you to see the pattern of Jesus' life, this descent and ascent, this swoosh, this conquest, this victory, and he wants you to look on that pattern and draw up courage. You may remember Peter is writing to Christians in what is called uh, Asia Minor, what is modern-day, parts of modern-day Turkey. And you may remember they're an extreme minority in their culture, but they're getting noticed um, because their loyalty to Christ puts them in odds with this prevailing cultural narrative around them. They find themselves sort of in the, receiving at least some mild level of persecution, and it seems to be increasing. And Peter is trying to help them understand why this is, and he said, Here, here's why this is. Um, because in a very strange way, though you may have grown up in these cities, you, you now, as those who are loyal to Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus, you are displaced people. In a sense, you are, you are refugees in your own land. Because you're now bonded to Christ, the one who lives and reigns in the heavenly realm, who promises a new heavens and a renewed earth. Because your loyalty is with him, you are displaced. And yet, in a very, very real way, the Lord has placed you might even say predestined you for the moments that you find yourself in. And just because those moments include suffering doesn't mean God is mad at you. And he's been belaboring to this congregation that suffering doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. In fact, suffering is a sign that you are embodying the story of Jesus into the communities around you. And Peter has been belaboring the point to to the church that he's writing to and to us that you suffer because you, you follow the pattern of Christ and his pattern included Christ, uh, included suffering, sorry. His pattern included suffering, even death. And so Peter up to this point has been using the story of Jesus and saying this to us as an example. But in our passage, it seems as though he's saying the story of Jesus is not just an example to you in your suffering, but it needs to become to you a source of great courage in the face of suffering. You need to see the story of Jesus and it needs to help you with confidence move forward into a world which is likely to confront you which is likely to persecute you which is likely to reject you and alienate you but you need to remember Jesus's life and the trajectory that it went on that Jesus's life is one in which we see victory conquest superiority and when you see this pattern of Jesus's life though it included suffering it goes on to glory this is to give you courage in the face of whatever, whatever comes before you. It must give you courage. So here's how I want to look at this passage this morning. I think Peter is saying that Jesus' suffering is not just for you an example, but it was efficacious. It did something for you, and it did something for me. And it gives to us a pattern, this swoosh pattern again, that should bring to us tremendous courage. So what I want to look at this morning is, what did Jesus' death actually accomplish, and how is it going to bring us courage? And I want to predictably look at three things, because that's how I see everything you're, you're starting to wonder. I think I had two points a couple weeks ago, though, so it's not always predictable. but I want to look at the way in which Jesus' suffering brought a settlement that should instill courage within you, the way in which Jesus' suffering brought a subjugation that should instill courage with you. And finally, the way in which Jesus' suffering brought a salvation that should instill courage in you. So first let's we're asking this question, what did Jesus suffering actually accomplish and how knowing that it accomplished this do, does Peter believe we are to grow in courage. And let's first look at this that Jesus suffering brought a settlement. And that settlement should instill some very serious courage inside of you. Where do we see this? Well, we see this most clearly in verse 18. Maybe the most easy, the easiest passage to understand in our passage. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Peter's point is that Christ's suffering was not pointless. It accomplished something. It objectively accomplished something. Again, think of the swoosh where the, the, the eternal Son of God, at the starting point of this, this logo, descends and comes to earth, and even... In human form experiences death. We're at the lowest point of this logo before it begins to upward to the upward trajectory. But Peter's point is this, that that low point, that death, wasn't just a tragic conclusion. It wasn't just an unfortunate chapter that somehow the sovereign God is going to use uh, in a way that is ultimately good. No, it's much more clear than that. Jesus' suffering was not deserved, for he was righteous, but it was intentional. It was for the unrighteous. He suffered for sin. Jesus didn't deserve to die. The punishment was, he, the, those who make the claims of the punishment on him, he did not have any right to make the claim. He did not deserve to die. But he actually pursued death as a means of dealing with our rebellion and our sin. And in suffering and in his death, he dealt with our sin in such a way that he can bring us to God. Verse 18 is wonderfully straightforward. I'm just rereading it over and over again to you. He died intentionally for sin that he might bring us to God and he only had to do it once. One time. One death. You, me, whoever hears this message throughout all of history can be brought to God. No daily sacrifice. No yearly sacrificial system. Once. An efficacious suffering that was purposeful And it brought a settlement between us and God, and it allowed us to participate by God's Spirit into God's realm in a mysterious way. For he accomplished something, he brought us to God. Maybe I could illustrate it this way, a little lighthearted. As you heard prayed, Lyndon and myself and all the elders did have a denominational meeting in Halifax. And one of our elders, who I won't embarrass, um, has actually suffered greatly. He's been sealed you know, in a, hermetically, <laughs> in a hermetically sealed tube and flown in the air for many, many hours of his life. He has given hours of his life in this plane. And he's done it so much that the powers that be at Air Canada said his suffering was sufficient. And it was even efficacious because he now gets to bear the title on his bag... And anytime his name is searched in the computer, sort of super gold elite, you know, your majesty, I don't know, the, the titles are incredible. You know, highest status with Air Canada. And having our highest status not only means that people get out of their way for you and that you get to go into the plane first, but I also learned it means that you get to go into the realm of the gold Air Canada lounge. Now Listen. Peasants like me don't belong there. I'm sure you've never been there. And there's no way that I could possibly earn my way into this elite gold status lounge, the super elite lounge. However, someone had suffered enough hours in a plane. (laughs) And it was so sufficient and so efficacious that now him and anyone who's tied to him is allowed into this realm of glory where there's free food everywhere and alcohol. It's very dangerous for someone like me, you know? Uh, You can get to go cups, that's just not wise. I was able to go in because someone else gave his life, gave his time. I didn't have the ability to enter in there. And not only that, even if I wanted to earn being in there, because I must admit, watching how they treated him was pretty special and I thought, wow, that would feel very good to be treated that way. I don't have 500 hours of my life nor the finances to fly back and forth to Japan basically over and over again until I could get this status. And by the time I got it, it would disappear by the next year. I could never earn my way in there. But in union with him, I was brought into this realm, this realm of glory. Now, on a more serious note, what is Peter saying? He's saying, church, listen clearly. Listen clearly. There has been a settlement made. You you do not have the ability to enter into God's glorious presence. And it's not just that you you can't earn it. You're at such a deficit. You can't even get your way back out of the deficit to come to a neutral state. In fact, your, your good behaviors even are so tainted by bad behaviors. These things are repulsive. And yet, Christ Jesus has, has made a settlement. He, he's logged in the hours of suffering. He took on flesh. He died on the cross. There is a very serious and real and objective settlement. He has brought you to God, and there is nothing you can do about it. You are in by in union with him. You are in by virtue of his status. This is the settlement that has come to you. It has been signed. It is sealed. It is certain you are in. And what does this mean for the church? It means, church, that all the benefits that come, and let me tell you, they're better than just free food and free alcohol. All the benefits that come from being in God's presence by the power of his spirit, all that power that's there, the power that creates the heavens and the earth and sustains them this very moment, now is yours because of this settlement. And my goodness, if you have access to your creator this way in prayer, if you have the ability, because of this settlement, in the name of Jesus to go to him with anything, how in the world could you grow discouraged in your suffering? Would this not give you tremendous courage in the face of suffering? That the same Lord who allowed Christ to suffer is putting suffering in your path, and yet you can cry out to him. You can ask for his power. He will sustain you. All that belongs to this realm of Christ now becomes yours because of this settlement. I could go on and on, but Jesus' suffering brought a settlement, and that settlement should instill courage. I hope that's very clear. But Peter goes deeper. And remember, we're asking this question. What did Jesus' suffering actually accomplish, and how did what it accomplish instill courage? And Peter says that Jesus' suffering actually brought a subjugation, and that subjugation should instill courage. Where do we see this? Well, this is where the passage gets quite tough. As verse 18 ends, we read that Jesus was put to death, uh, probably best understood, in the realm of the flesh, but he was made alive in another sort of realm, the realm of the Spirit. And it's in the realm of the Spirit, we read, that he went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison, verse 19, and these were the spirits that formerly disobeyed in the days of Noah, verse 20 in the first half. So what's going on? Um, There's all kinds of questions we could ask. In fact, I think one commentator said mathematically there's about 180 ways you could interpret this passage based on decisions you make on translation issues. Um, it seems as though there's three main views about these spirits in prison, though, that might give you some wisdom as to how to navigate, and I'll give you my opinion on them. And the first view would be that Jesus, after he died, while his body was in the grave, his spirit sort of maybe descended into hell, like is, is read in some um, understandings of the Apostles' Creed. And while he was in hell, he sort of proclaimed to the spirits in prison what he had accomplished. That would be one view. Another view was that... Um, Jesus actually his spirit the spirit of what Jesus was was doing in his life Death and resurrection was preached through the voice of Noah as Noah prepared for the flood and he preached to people And a third view which is quickly becoming something of the consensus view uh, due to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls if I, I'll explain in a second. Jesus proclaimed that he at, at, his, at his resurrection and at his victory as Jesus was sort of ascending into heaven Jesus proclaimed to the spirits Let's, maybe we could say the demons, the evil spirits, that he, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, that it was all him, that he's victorious, he proclaimed his victory, and he put evil on notice that their days are numbered. And all those fallen angels who had worked so hard to destroy the world, and in fact came so close in the days of Noah, only eight left, they were only eight short of corrupting all of God's image bearers, all those corrupt spirits now learn That they are in subjugation, not just to God the Spirit. They've always been in subjugation to him. But they are now in subjugation to the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, one who has flesh just like us. These spirits who almost won in the days of Noah now know that there is one man in flesh who is over them and and they are in subjection completely to him. There's a new subjugation because of Jesus' suffering. This has become the majority view, as I stated, for a variety of reasons, but one being... That we've we've discovered especially in the dead sea scrolls that there was a, a great fascination with um, pr- right before the flood we have this strange passage in the bible that the sons of god married the daughters of men and there was a, there was a, quite a fascination and quite a bit of writing in fact there's a book called one enoch first enoch uh, that sort of unpacks this um, where there's all kinds of speculation about how these this interaction created the demons that had kind of roamed the earth and in, same, in some ways sought to distort the image bearers of God. But in defining in the these things, we've also found the stories that frequently God declared that he would have victory. He would have victory over these, this spiritual realm, and it seems as though that is what we're seeing here. That Jesus, at his death, resurrection, and ascension, declares himself victorious over all that spiritual realm. That they're now all in subj- subject to him. This is what verse 22 picks up on on the end of your passage. You can see it there. Jesus goes into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and, pa- and powers having been subje- subjected to him. Peter is telling the suffering Christians this, that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And as he rose from the dead and as he ascended into heaven, he says, your days are numbered, evil spirits who want to destroy God's good creation and corrupt those who bear God's image. you're you're on notice. You're you're as good as done. It's just a matter of me sending out my church to clean up what's left, but it is all in subjection to me. You have no power that you once had. You thought you could run free over human flesh. Now human flesh is over you with absolute certainty. This is what was announced. Now, it's complicated, I understand, so let me be lighthearted and at risk of the aforementioned elder never allowing me to the Air Canada Lounge again. I'll make one more illustration about it. When we get to the Air Canada Lounge at, in Halifax, it was on the third floor. and So we went up the second floor to where all the gates were, and then we ascended. We had our ascension, you know, <laughs> into the realm of the third floor with the Air Canada Lounge. And you know what happened when I got up there? I saw there was a little balcony just this high. And I realized that there were a lot of other pastors and elders from other churches, sister churches, people that I dearly love, who did not have access to this realm. And in fact, they were in subjugation to the powers that be that control the departure gates, but not I. And so I leaned over the edge of the balcony, looking down, seeking to make eye contact, and to give a little wave (laughs) and a smile. To show forth the way in which I had been elevated over all the rules of the boarding area. I didn't have to stay right next to my bag anymore, and I could get free food. I wanted them to see it. It wasn't my more holy moment, but now you know. Not a perfect illustration. I'm trying to get you to laugh. This is a, this is a heavy passage, but here's my point. Jesus has done something better than going up to the third floor to the Air Canada Lounge. <laughs> With his human flesh, flesh like yours and mine, hair, body like ours, he was invited into God's very presence to sit with God at his right hand, God the Spirit, with his eyes like yours, pupils, I don't know how they dilate in heaven, the body like yours and mine, all the features. He ascends into heaven and he gets to sit at God's right hand and as he does that, everyone watches and sees and he looks down and he doesn't just wave and smile and say, how, does it, how is it down there, you wicked spirits who tried to ruin my sisters and brothers. No, he proclaims, It's finished. It's objective. It's done. All of you are in subjugation to me. Demons, you don't have the power you once had. A human flesh reigns over you. I am supreme. Now, why would this give courage to Peter's audience? Well, I hope you're hearing this word subjugation in your minds. Maybe not, but if you've been reading and listening closely to 1 Peter, you'll remember what has he been saying. Be subject to every human institution, especially the emperor even when he deals unjustly. Servants, be subject to your master, even if you receive an unjust beating. Wives, be subject to your husband, even if he's an unbeliever. And what is is Peter saying? In you being temporarily subjected to these people, know that evil is in subjection to Jesus at this point. Does this not give you some courage? In the face of being mistreated, know that all of these people one day will answer to Jesus. He he is high and in heaven, and his doing just fine in his human flesh. He objectively conquered. This realm is his. And everyone one day will bow the knee to him. And so what does that mean? Well, it means the governing institution may get it wrong. And the way that we're going to show courage and show that we believe Jesus' suffering was effective and it accomplished something, is that we're going to be willing to be subjected at times unjustly and even suffer because we know Jesus' victory is certain. And these people will pay. They will pay, and we're confident of it. Look, I'm going to try to be careful. I don't want to create more division in the body of Christ, but hear me clearly. There's a myth growing around that says this. The way that you show that you take your faith seriously— that you're very, very committed to Christ, is that you aggressively disagree and rebel with any governing authority who puts anything in your way for making your life uncomfortable, and anything that looks like it makes assembling at a church different. You guys know what I'm talking about. When someone said, you got to wear a mask at church, people said, you don't tell me how to worship my God. And there's a myth given that that's what courage looks like. I venture to guess Peter would look down at us And say it takes way more courage. Way more courage. Maybe to begrudgingly go along with what was required of you, trusting that on the last day the Lord will judge. Because Jesus is absolutely, he's absolutely put all evil powers in subjection to him, and it's only a matter of time where this will continue. And sometimes it's outside of our power, and we have to play by the rules put above us, but boy, it takes a lot of courage to say the Lord's going to make right. He's going to settle the books on the last day. He really is, I promise you. It's certain. Take courage. Jesus' suffering brought a subjection of these evil spirits, and that subjection should instill courage. But it's not just that there was a settlement. It's not just that these evil spirits have been brought into subjection. Oh, boy. Jesus' suffering brought a salvation that should instill courage. His suffering brought a salvation, and that salvation should instill courage within you. Well, where do we see this? We see this when Peter picks up the story of Noah the story of Noah, which is found in Genesis 6 through 9. You may remember the evil forces had nearly won. They had almost completely distorted all the image bearers of God, his sons and his daughters. There was no one left on this earth that was righteous. Wickedness was compounding and compounding and compounding, and it was headed, the world was headed into absolute destruction, and there was one man that was righteous. His name was Noah, and that one man the Lord said, would be the means through which all of humanity would be rebuilt. The corrupting powers would not have their way with this one man and his family, and that's why eight of them were put on an ark, and they were saved as God's anger and wrath poured down rain on the earth. And this rain destroyed all the powers. It brought salvation to this family from all the corrupting powers when they were on the very edge, teetering on the edge of there being no one who rightly bore God's image. This flood became a means by which they were rescued and invited into a new world where these corrupting powers were not there anymore. And Peter sees this flood illustration. He sees this flood illustration and, he, and, he, and he's, his connection is this. He doesn't say that Noah and his family were saved by from water, or sorry, he doesn't say that they were saved, um, rescued from water, but he says it was by water that they were rescued. What does that mean? Through water, maybe, is another way to translate the preposition that they're, they're rescued from water. What does that mean? It means this, that part of their salvation was not just that they were given an ark to float on top of the waters, but part of their salvation came that their enemies, who sought to destroy them, who sought to make sure that they were not righteous, that they did not follow their God and creator, That it was in the water. By the water, they were destroyed. And in their destruction became the salvation of Noah. Became his deliverance from this world in which his days felt numbered. And Peter's drawing upon this and he's saying, this now for the church community, this is just like baptism. Because it's your baptism, again with water, by water, that unites you with Christ. That bonds you with Christ. And because you are bound with Christ he sits in heaven, you have experienced a taste of the salvation that is fully to come on the last day, but it is certainly yours because of his suffering. You've been delivered from the contemporary world by virtue of your bonding with Christ in the same way as the swoosh descends on into eternity, so also your story includes that. You're bound to Christ. This is why he says baptism saves. Peter says, the waters of baptism have now replaced the waters and the days of Noah. The means by which salvation will come to this earth and touch God's people is applied, signified, and sealed through the waters of baptism. Not a removal of dirt, as though these waters could contain some kind of magical power and you could scrub yourself clean to get access to God. No way! But by the power of the resurrection, they now become for you an appeal to God for a good conscience. You are bound up with Christ. And the salvation Jesus offers is applied and put upon you. And in this, in your baptism, you have no reason to be ashamed. You have a good and settled conscience because your story is tied up with Christ's story. Now, all this to say, and I know some of you are on the edge of your seat waiting for me to say it. All this to say, the waters of baptism are magical. It's not as though if you know, we could just sneak a couple people in here, put them in a headlock, throw some water on them. We'd have more Christians, you know, more people going to heaven around Toronto. That's not how it works. But what we also ought not denigrate, baptism. Something happens with these waters. And we are given a true appeal in our baptism. An appeal to God. Calling upon his resurrected power. A good conscience saying, Lord, I am one of the baptized. And as surely as Jesus, when the waters came upon him and he heard from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. As surely as that was true of Jesus, you have promised through these waters, through this ceremony, that that could be true of me. And we appeal to God. Another way of saying this is baptism is applied to us and we're called in faith to believe and to trust in the promises given to us through this baptism. The water itself, apart from Christ, is worthless. But by the power of Christ and his resurrection, the water becomes for us a means of confidence, an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's what it is for us. And this, friends, should give you tremendous courage. Hear me clearly. I'm not trying. I want you to hear me clearly. God could have brought salvation into our world through other means. He could have multiplied the sacrificial system. He could have written promises in heaven on clouds. But he chose to use physical means of insisting that his son, who was spirit, become fully and truly human, that we could know and experience salvation in Jesus. He uses fleshy things. He uses touchy things, tactile things. He likes to use things like this, and it shouldn't surprise us That in his wisdom, he wants us to also experience salvation, not just through ideas and propositions that come into our mind, but through tangible, physical means. That when our faith is right at the edge, we have an appeal to God. An appeal to God, Lord, I am baptized. Have mercy on me. I am baptized, Lord. You have made promises. Uphold your promise, Lord. This is what... Peter wants the church to hear so they could grow in courage in the face of suffering when they're right at the edge. Again, our faith is not in the water, faith is not even in the minister administering it. Our faith is bound up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But our Lord Jesus saw fit that the way it is applied to us, it is sealed upon us, the way in which it's symbolized to us is through baptism. Are there people in heaven who weren't baptized? Sure, that's probably worthwhile to say. It's, It's not so inextricably tied that God can't get around this. But as a general principle, the way in which salvation will be tasted, known, and experienced is through a physical means like baptism. And this, for Peter, this, for Peter, is a source of great courage for the church that's suffering. It's a source for great courage. Yeah, let, me, let me conclude this way, and I told Lyndon, I actually told the sound guy at some point just to fade me out and fade up the background music if I get going too long. But listen to me clearly. Some of you need to be baptized. I know it's awkward standing in front of people. makes you uncomfortable. You need to be baptized. And you need to take it very seriously. Some of you have been baptized, maybe as an infant. That water hits your head and you don't have any memory of it, but you know it happened somewhere and you know it was important. Some of you need to think very long and hard about what happened at that baptism. You need to remember that God claimed you as his own there, and it's no accident you stumbled into this church. It's no accident. The Lord claimed you as his own. But that baptism needs to become for you a means by which you appeal to God for your forgiveness and for your cleansing of sins. You need to, through that baptism, look to Christ afresh. And say, I'm bound to Christ, but I'm not acting like someone bound to Christ. Lord, have mercy on me. I've made a mockery of my baptism. Forgive me. Forgive me. And thank you for promises being put upon me that, and that you just won't let me go. But for others of us, we need to make it a regular practice to remind ourselves and to remind one another of our baptism. The reformer Martin Luther said we should start every morning and every evening by reminding ourselves that we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we as a people, as a church, need to do is we need to tell people don't forget your baptism. This wasn't just a silly ceremony. You belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You traveling this week? You face temptations? You are baptized. You are baptized. Your story is bound up with the story of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You bring your baptism wherever you go. Don't you forget it. You're tempted to be lazy. Loyalty to your career to outpace loyalty to Christ, you are baptized. Do you know what that means? You are united to Christ in His victory. Be of great courage. Be loyal to Christ. And if you're tempted to be a coward in the face of persecution, if you're tempted to be quiet about your faith because it seems too risky and the cost seems to be too great, you need to remember that you are baptized. You are united with the victorious one. No suffering is going to overtake you and destroy you. You are baptized. You belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as surely as Christ reigns victorious at the right hand of the Father, that will be where your story heads. And maybe some of you who are doubting God's care, you're wondering, does he even care? I've wanted to get pregnant forever. And my goodness, one more. I can't do this, Lord. Not answering my prayers in my time of need. You need to remember your baptism. This is an appeal to God for a good conscience. You say to the Lord, Lord, I know I've failed to be the person that's perfect, to fail to be the person that you've called me to be, but my goodness, Lord, I believe that Christ died for me, and these promises have been put on me in baptism. When my faith is weak, I I at least know I'm baptized. Have mercy on me, Lord. Hear my prayer. Don't hold this against me, Lord. Treat me as your daughter. Treat me as your son. I belong. You promised. You promised. What Peter's been trying to say to the Christians that he's facing, and I hope what you're hearing today, there's no doubt that there are difficult days ahead of us. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, and I don't know what the persecution is going to come, but there is absolutely no doubt about the story of Jesus Christ. He reigns at God's right hand, surely and certainly. And there is no one who can dethrone him. No one stands a chance. And he's seen fit to interact in our world in such a way that his suffering has become effective to bring about not just a subjugation of all the evil spirits and not just some kind of settlement where you have access to God, but in a very real way, his suffering has been applied to you and sealed upon you in the sacrament of baptism and you need to be a people who know this to be true so you can be a people of great courage. This is God's word for our church. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, your church, ask that you would remind us of the bonds we have to Christ through faith, physically experienced through baptism, and in these bonds, you would make us the type of courageous Christians who long to see the kingdom of Christ, which will certainly spread over all of Toronto, who make us into the type of people work even this week to see your kingdom of goodness, kindness, mercy, justice, grace flourish in Toronto. We thank you for the work of Christ. We ask that you would help us to understand it more deeply and apply it more deeply to our lives. And for those who haven't been baptized, Lord, would you work now in their lives that they might move towards coming under the waters. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at
1: ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.